1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Regan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Natalie Valdez, who is the author of the book Weighing the Future Race, Science, and Pregnancy Trials in the Post Genomic Era, published by the University of California Press. Dr. Valdez, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, thanks so much for coming today. And so, in the book, um, you examine these research trials or studies that intervene in the behavioral choices of pregnant people, such as trying to change their diet and exercise. So I wanted to just start with a question we normally begin with, which is how did you come to write this book and what got you interested in this topic? Yes, I've gotten this question quite a few times because people
0: are pretty surprised to hear about these trials. they were like, I mean, I, I had a similar reaction when I first learned about pregnancy trials. I had no idea that there were large, extensive international pregnancy trials occurring because I had the understanding that, you know, since the nineteen fifties or that after the thalidomide trials, pregnant people were vulnerable populations and so they were not recruited into clinical trials. For drug um, interventions or drug experimentation, so they are vulnerable populations protected from pharmaceutical development uh, trials. But that's changing; it just changed this last a few years that pregnant people are now going to be recruited into clinical trials for drug developments. But these trials are, as you said, behavioral, and they are deemed "quote unquote" safe for pregnant participants, and the way that i've gotten into studying pregnancy trials is of course retrospectively sounds linear but in the moment was a a kind of a maze that i was just trusting my intuition to be curious about maternal health interventions and nutritional interventions in general so my background is that in my undergrad research i participated in um, nutritional interventions, psych- in the Department of Psychology, and I was uh doing research in medical anthropology. So I have a long background working in nutritional interventions, and I was really interested in public health. And my, uh, you know, my in my grad application, I had w- pitched a project on uh, metabolic illness product for in and around the US-Mexico border. So I was thinking about those ideas. I was thinking about nutrition and food. And I had explored a lot of different iterations of this project in my first three summers of grad school. And I wasn't able to land on something concretely until I applied for the School of Public Health program at UC Berkeley. And when I was accepted, I also uh, received an NSF grant and I had to pick one or the other. So I was able to do an intercampus exchange program at UC Berkeley, and I studied in the School of Public Health there. And in the coursework and the research um, mentors that I had, I was able to be uh, I learned of these clinical trials. So that's the initial encounter was through my coursework and research at the School of Public Health in Berkeley. And then I um, started to request permission, to work on an ongoing trial that I had learned about in the United States. And so that took on around two years of gaining access and permission. And once I gained permission at that first trial site, I was um, more legible at other trial sites as that kind of snowball sampling, but also networking kind of goes is that once you've been Recognized as working in a particular space, other people feel like you've been vouched for in that kind of way. So I entered the US trial and it worked out for both of us in that the PI really needed um, educated, experienced researchers who had done nutritional interventions and were bilingual. And so I fit that need for them. And I, in exchange, asked for access to um, interview the staff, um, observe all the processes of implementation. And we had to work out an agreement on what kind of data I could use, which is a longer response, but I'm happy to follow up on that. But, um, but yeah, so my initial encounter was through the School of Public Health, And that really helped shape a lot of the research questions that came out of um, the coursework and connecting with researchers who were designing and implementing and asking questions about maternal health policies and interventions. And then, of course, I started to see this convergence around maternal health interventions within the realm of metabolic illnesses like diabetes and obesity and and epigenetics and DOHaD or developmental origins of health and disease. So, there's a convergence that occurs in these spaces that I bear witness to as clinical trials are drawing from epigenetics and head to justify the value of intervening during pregnancy because it is framed as a critical period of development. And so, of course, these interventions and in diet of a diet and exercise had a longer history. And I go into that in my chapter two. But there's a particular moment in the, um, um, 2010s, 2013, 14. That uh, that clinical trials started to draw on this literature ahead in go and epigenetics to further justify these kinds of interventions. Um, so that's a roundabout way, but hopefully, um, it makes sense that I explored a lot of interdisciplinary um, areas across medical anthropology, STS, and public health, and those um, exploratory um, kind of experiences led me to encounter pregnancy trials. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I think it's so important to hear how people came to these topics because one might think it's just one linear drive to one topic. And as you say, it's, you know, there's a, there's a a process and a series of, of, of discoveries, um, for the self that leads you to a particular area. And so I guess building off of that, I wondered if you could tell us about the setting for the research to these pregnancy trials. Um, As you said, that you didn't know about the trials. I also had no idea that such trials existed. However, I probably shouldn't have been surprised because I myself have taken part in other human research trials, you know, in the past. Um, But the trials in your book are recruiting pregnant people for scientific research. So I just wondered if you could tell us, you know, what are the researchers hoping to find out? what are pregnant people expected to do generally to participate in the research and what countries did you focus on? Um, So if you could just generally orient us to the research setting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So pregnancy trials are not, they don't look exactly the same everywhere, but they are designed in very similar ways. So that's to say the infrastructural support for where a trial is, implemented can vary um, depending on whether or not that trial site is associated with a teaching hospital in a large urban area or a smaller clinic in a rural area. And so the the settings can look differently based on those kinds of factors. Um, I focused on clinical trials that were on, on particular sites in um, the United States and the United Kingdom. The clinical trial in the United States had several sites across the country. I only focused on one main site. And um, these clinical trials are often part of larger consortium trials, which a consortium is a collection of trials. So... The NIH and um, NIDDK, various national health institutes um, for health research, were funding these clinical trials across the country. The site that I was working on in the US was not associated with a public teaching hospital, which meant that we, as staff members, had to visit clinics, private and public clinics, and recruit from their Waiting rooms basically. So we would go into a prenatal clinic, a reproductive, like a maternal health clinic, and um, wait in the waiting room and and try and catch people in their um, first prenatal visit at least between um, seven to 12 weeks gestation. They really needed to be recruited and randomized into the clinical trial by. 14 weeks gestation, no later than 16 weeks gestation because the variability increases in a lot of different areas after that. So we had a crucial period of time to recruit. Um, recruitment looks really differently in different locations. So if you are in a clinic in a more rural area, you're not going to have access to the large databases in, clinical, uh, in hospitals. So the numbers are harder to to reach. It's very arduous and um, exhausting. Hours and hours waiting to collect, um, um, to be able to even encounter pregnant people in the clinics. So that's what it kind of looks like for recruitment in a smaller versus a large teaching hospital. I then also had the experience of working or observing in a larger teaching hospital in the UK that um, this hospital was handling over 1200 births a year. And so because this was also a teaching hospital within the national health system or the NHS in the UK. And so these settings um, create a standardized kind of universalized system such that every researcher associated with the trial had access to a database that had all the information for anyone um, who came in through the hospital. And so that was a huge resource for recruitment. And you basically looked at this computer, this database. You knew when somebody was gonna have an appointment for their first prenatal appointment. You knew their G you your their BMI, which was a body mass index, which was really important for eligibility for these clinical trials. And you'd you'd go from you know, one floor down to another floor to recruit. And so that was a very immediate kind of, everything was centralized at that teaching hospital. So the labor um, and the time and the effort looks really differently if you're trying to recruit from multiple um, clinics versus a large teaching hospital. And of course, these are trials that are um, funded by national agencies. And so they're carried out in, um, in a very, large international context too. So the clinical trials that I worked on were also in conversation with each other um, because they're doing these large, similarly designed clinical trials on pregnant populations uh, using interventions of diet and exercise. Um, Can you remind me of the rest of the questions? Does that give you a little bit of
1: an idea of what it looks like, um, these clinical, the setting for clinical trials? Oh, definitely. And the other question was um, like, what are the pregnant people expected to do to participate? Oh, right. So, in order to be eligible
0: for these clinical trials, you, again, like I said, you have to have a viable pregnancy. You have to be within a certain gestational age. You have to have a BMI. In the United States, the BMI cutoff was 25, and in the UK, the BMI cutoff was 30. Uh, and I can get into those numbers if if you're interested in, but those are kind of um, standard classifications for um, overweight populations and obese populations. So 25 and over is technically classified as overweight and 30 and over with a BMI of 30 and over is classified as obese. And that BMI classification is assessed at the intake appointment. And so pregnant people earlier in their gestation, the BMI is supposed to be indicative of that kind of pre-pregnancy BMI and not necessarily including all of the um, variability and weight uh, once conception and development um, advances. So there were a lot of metrics, a lot of calculations that we had to make in order to make sure that the um, Based on gestational time and weight, there were there was this eligibility met around BMI. The other eligibility requirement was uh, that the pregnant people had to not have any other comorbidities, so they could not have they couldn't be diagnosed with type one diabetes, for instance. Um, And the other main requirement was that they would be ethnically racially diverse. And those definitions really changed or were really different in different places. But, um, the site that I was looking at in the US. really focused on comparing Hispanic and non quote unquote, Hispanic and non-Hispanic populations, and that's the language they were using in the trial. And the pregnant participants were um, in intake, so we you know, recruit them, and once they're recruited, we give them their consent form. We randomize them at the first session, which means that they're randomly assigned to a control or experimental group of the trial. And they are required to do assessments, which is a various a various kinds of data collection, biobehavioral um, data collection. so a lot of surveys, uh, assessing behaviors, and then um, blood, urine, some and then the biosamples could could differ depending on whether or not participants consented to different kinds of biosamples. So the UK would um, collect um, similar kinds of biosamples. The U.S. trial site varied a little bit as well, but for the most part, everyone collected blood at various times of gestation, urine, cord blood, and sometimes placenta. And um, but you could also collect breast milk, fecal samples, um, even hair samples. Um, it, it varies significantly, but there's a lot of bio behavioral pregnant data that's collected and you consent to at these various stages, regardless of being in the intervention or control group. So the control group was standard prenatal care, and you basically came in for your data collection assessments. The intervention or experimental group for the US meant that they met with a nutritional interventionist or a staff member like myself who would deliver this intervention to them every two weeks for about six months of their pregnancy. This intervention maintained a kind of you needing to um, count their calories, count their steps, um, keep a food journal, weigh themselves every day, and um, replace breakfast and lunch with a liquid beverage. That was the kind of intervention in the U.S. site. In the U.K., the intervention was um, mostly counting steps, assessing physical activity, and um, changing from a high glycemic diet to a low glycemic diet. So that meant counting uh, the 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 amount of fat and um and sugar content. Um, so high high glycemic diet is very particular to carbs, sugar um, assessments. So it's very it's a epistemologically different understanding of metabolism and nutrition, counting calories versus counting grams of sugar and fat. But um, the ultimate goal was to reduce the amount of weight gained uh, in the U.S. trial. And um, in the U.K., it was mainly trying to reduce race of gestational diabetes, which is a form of diabetes that you can contract during gestation, which leaves or, or disappears after you deliver your a child or after birth. Um, and can return decades later. So, gestational diabetes is a very <laughs> mysterious illness, a meta- part of a mel- metabolic illness. But yes, uh, generally, the main health outcomes for both of the trials were to quote unquote improve healthy pregnancies by reducing weight gain, reducing risk of gestational diabetes, um, and um, improving health outcomes for the infants, which also were assessed by how neonatal infant adiposity so, whether these were quote unquote. Ba- um, fat babies or babies that were assumed to be within a healthy amount of weight, um, and then their g- glycemic um, levels at it, taken it at infancy. So there were a few different um, assessments or health outcomes that the both trials were all interested in um, achieving through the intervention. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for that um, introduction to the site. So, as you were um, participating as a researcher in these trials, um, one of the arguments that you make in the book um, and that really you know held the book together it was continued throughout the book was that these trials focus on the individual pregnant person as a site of intervention and not the social conditions in which they would find themselves. Um, which can also be damaging for pregnancy, such as the environmental conditions of pollution or social conditions of racism or poverty. Uh, these, these wider conditions were not accounted for in these, in these trials that you, were, that you were involved in. And so I wondered if you could um, tell us what you would want to about this argument. And I also wondered how you came to, uh, to this particular argument.
0: Right, so the that's absolutely one of the the kind of findings in terms of thinking about what um, is the focus in in these in these trials, and so thinking about the individual in relation to the structural or the population is a long standing um, point of inquiry for sociology, anthropology, epidemiologists. Um, And so, it's not necessarily a new finding nor a new argument, but I I make the case that these particular kinds of um, scientific theories and methodologies and technologies are exacerbating the um, individualistic um, focus in particularly new ways in a twenty first century post genomic context. So, we're as social scientists we we've consistently come to this this conundrum around how does the individual um, relate to the larger population and how is that relationship studied? Um, and so I think my work contributes to that kind of curiosity by bringing in um, unique ethnographic insights from ongoing clinical trials that um, simultaneously draw on large population um, ideas about public population health and public health interventions, but then narrow it down to the individual. So there's a very unique process in the clinical translation of these ideas um, at practice in, in, in the sites that I'm looking at. So the reason that I came up to this, uh, this argument really is drawing on a lot of the literature that has already come up in medical anthropology, social epidemiology around how do we think about Population health and, and this question that's been um, becoming more significant in the last few decades around precision medicine and predictive medicine that's really taking on an individual attention to customizing your health based on your own particular um, kind of genomic sequence. And, and so there is this interesting resurgence around the precision, um, predictive, that, that centers on this very particular kind of ex- genomic expression at the individual scale. And then, of course, needing to create population level interventions. So, um, this the pregnancy trials and pregnancy trials within a post genomic era are really offer up a, a great site for thinking about these longstanding questions. And um, the the main thing that I want to uh, um, assert is that it's it's of course there is an issue with only focusing on individuals. Um, But the main thing is that this kind of focus is political. So redistributing a ton of national and international resources into clinical trials that are extremely (laughs) expensive to run um, in order to test interventions that will show whether or not individual behavior change can effectively address chronic illness is a, it's kind of like an, oh it's a broken record. Like we could cure diabetes and obesity if only you'd stop eating that donut, or if only you went out for a walk a little bit more. So this is also within the field of metabolic illness, a a very common trope. But when we look again at this kind of like, how do we create population level interventions that work for everybody, but then also cater it to an individual and then How do we reinvest our health resources into these spaces? Um, I try to emphasize the the very particular kinds of power relations and politics, especially around race and racism that emerge at these these levels. So my main um, comment is that individual interventions um, need to be read as symptomatic of systemic racism and not actually a solution to Broader metabolic illnesses that plague predominantly poor people of color. So this is becomes really important to emphasize. So it's not just that like we we need to focus on the structural, which which is a point that I'm making. But a, but the way the reason that I'm making that point is that um, these individual interventions are assuming that um, poor brown and black bodies are in fact riskier. And they need to be targeted for interventions. And so I'm also bringing in this very clear connection between individual interventions, individualism, the ideologies that underground individual interventions at the expense of structural interventions that are um, absolutely tied to um, race and racism. So whose bodies, it's particular individual bodies that are targeted. Um, and so that becomes part of the larger argument to say, yes, it, it, it's echoing much of the research that says structural interventions are necessary over individual ones. And I'll keep you know sounding the horn on that same note over and over again. And specifically that the continuous um, investment on individuals is part of a um, racial politics in in thinking about our health, which is that um, certain bodies are targeted and certain bodies are deemed at risk, and um, that comes through in these ideas of individual um, responsibility. And, and that's something that I that I really think is important in reminding us: it's not just about neoliberal policies that make individuals more responsible, but the specific stakes of that, and it becomes. Even more consequential when we're thinking about pregnancy, because of the uh, amounts, the degradation of maternal rights, and the ways in which state surveillance can come in and make more and more decisions around individual bodies um, and behaviors and choices around that. So, for instance, thinking with Kara Bridges' work on reproducing race, if if um, you know certain pregnant people or particularly African American. Pregnant people who went in and were were receiving Medicaid and they didn't follow their nutritional guidelines, it could be held accountable legally and criminally. And so that is a very different, um, you know, manifestation of of individual um, control, surveillance, and management that is absolutely based on racism and not necessarily just this kind of relationship between the individual and the structural. So emphasizing that is part of the um, agenda here alongside many Black feminist scholarship that have been writing on reproduction and and racism in these same spaces as well. So I'm hoping that we unfortunately haven't come that far from the the decades of scientific um, kind of evolutions, revolutions, paradigmatic shifts, that we have to say the same things over and over again. But um, I am hopeful that this particular kind of site will land on people in a way that makes it urgent to rethink the way in which we invest in population health and maternal health in particular.
1: Yeah, this is so, that's so important. Um, what you just said, and I'm going to follow up then with what you're talking about, about race and racism, power and racial politics, because of course in the book as well, you state that race doesn't cause disease racism does and I thought this was so important in thinking about just um, health and medicine in general. We've, we've seen with COVID-19, the pandemic, how um, African-American and Latinx populations have died at you know greater rates. And so I thought these findings around race are, you know, they have continued salience in so many different aspects. Um, and for you, you're looking again in these pregnancy trials, and um, they seem to be carried out in ways you know, that did not align with this emphasis on racism rather than race. And so how did the trials treat race during recruitment and the carrying out of research? And um, how does racism make people sick? Oh, great questions. Um, so
0: the trials treat categories of race as classificatory forms of organizing populations. And that is very common in the ways in which racial classifications and racial categories have been used in public health since the 1993 NIH mandate to recruit, quote, women and minorities into clinical trials. And so, of course, we have the the work of um, Stephen Epstein and the Politics of Inclusion that that lays out this kind of the aftermath of of that initial policy, and you know now I'm here thinking we're 30 years after this initial um, policy intervention made at, at national levels, and the UK is following this as well, which is why they recruit ethnically diverse people um, uniquely defined. But in the US, it was categories of you know African American, uh, white, Native American quote-unquote Hispanic. Those were the main categories that they were trying to recruit. And different sites across the United States were target were set up in order to recruit particular populations because those sites had a demographic that could meet those requirements, the, the um, recruitment, the target population for recruitment. So that's why they spread out across the country in order to meet those numbers. But it is extremely difficult to recruit um, ethnically diverse pregnant populations, uh, pregnant populations in general, because it's, it's not, it, it's hard to, um, there are a lot of different reasons for that. And I can kind of get into with it. But the question about race is that they are using these um, race as a classification category only. And we know that these categories are unstable. They are, um Often inaccurate in representing um, individual experiences or understandings of uh, personal identity. Um, and they're not rigorously used or in a standard way. So, Hunt and Magiesi's work have um, shown that in a lot of uh, racial, the use of racial categories in genomic research. Is different for every different research project. And that's the same for clinical trials. I've also found that different clinical trials will use different sets of classification systems. And that's, you know, coming out of one of my articles in uh, medical anthropology called the improvisation of race in clinical trials, which is, you know, when you're recruiting somebody and you ask them, what do you identify, you have five and you give them five categories and people are like, well, you know, for instance, this would something this would be the case for, Some folks in the U.S. um, where they they identify as Afro Latinos or uh, um, and and that category really (laughs) presented a challenge because um, the groups were either Hispanic or non-white Hispanic uh, or um, non-Hispanic white. And so it was just a very complicated, um, ambiguous zone. And so when we are thinking about these complexities at an individual level, how do people identify and then how does that match up to categories that are imposed from the design table where at a population level there's a lot that gets improvised and kind of um, you know very much somewhat made up in in the process of filling out those surveys and in the UK it was similar because they actually had a classification one through 10, which like was a much more complicated um, classification system, but then they used another one on top of that. That was only four categories. So this is all to say that the classifications of race are a limited measure of organizing populations, which is why I, I really tried to make the, the emphasis in the text that um, comparing groups across race, does not address the underlying um, force that shapes differences in health outcomes. And that force is racism. And so if we're trying to address disparities in health across race, but we refuse to study racism, we will continuously reproduce studies that find disparities in health, but do not address or intervene on those disparities. Um, And so the use of race and these clinical trials is similar to another research, which is that it's descriptive and um, mostly inaccurate in assessing experiences at the ground, on the ground level. And um, they, they often are used to compare health outcomes as opposed to address the, the differences and the gaps that are um, motivated by systemic racism. So that's a big issue, and, and I and we're, you know the the question of like we need more diversity in clinical research is no doubt a worthy cause. However, um, the way in which we've been doing it since the 90s has not um, been effective in ameliorating racist disparities in health. And so the book is really trying to make a case for um, thinking about racism as a health um, variable that should be studied and taken seriously. Well, and beyond just the recruitment of um, ethnically diverse categories of groups of people.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, And so I wondered if you could talk about some of the methods you used to carry out the study. You talked about this a little bit in the beginning, and I thought that um, as a researcher wanting to do research about research, I thought that. Possibly that might make them more understanding, um, maybe even more welcoming to you to come into the study. But I wondered if you could talk about um, how how you access these sites. And I think you also mentioned um, having to work out what kind of material you could actually include in your study since you were doing a study about other research and what role um, you took on across, you know, across your carrying out the studies. Yeah, so that's
0: a big question, and I, and I um, really puzzled through how to talk about it, because as you can tell, even in just these questions, there's so much material to lay out, and that was one of the biggest challenges in writing the book, is what background context do I foreground, and what um, do I kind of leave out, and that was really, because this book could have been like volumes if I was going to go into detail into all the different things that went into these trials. Um, and I I, w- I have decided to expand a reflection on my methodological approach in a medical anthropology quarterly paper that should be coming out in the next um, year or so. But but basically in that paper I outline and I'm much more transparent and vulnerable about the process of methodologically accessing clinical trials and specifically the notion of studying up in anthropology. Uh, and here in, in that paper, I'm really reflecting on what it means to study up in a, um, you know, study up from the margins and in a, you know, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal capitalist cultures. Uh, I mean, cultures being context that I was thinking about in these spaces, but, but those dynamics are still at play. And so the power relationships in gaining access were very different than the power relationships I had been taught in my ethnographic methods courses and feminist ethnographic methods courses, because, um, you know, of course, in the, um, you know, when we're thinking about the, the push, the, the reflection on methods in the 80s, and I'm thinking about Joan Scott's piece, Can There Be Feminist Ethnography? The idea was that people were studying and researching vulnerable populations, and that these methods and protocols and ethics were developed in, in light of that kind of a power relationship. And that there would never be a, a a kind of flattening out of those relations of power. And that was that's very useful. And I teach that to my students today. And then when I think about the intersection of those. Feministly, feminist guides and and meth and ethnographic methods and STS, which is the the space that I'm finding myself in, which is an ethnography of science, uh, an ethnography of the laboratory, in which um, these are these are spaces that are often populated by um, you know predominantly white women, white men, um, and they're in elite academic spaces because most if not all clinical research is designed and funded in the global north and i use that as a a, in a critical sense to talk about the um, materialization of race and empire so to think that only particular spaces in the globe have the money to design these trials but that influence the rest of population health is a power dynamic in itself you know influenced by colonialism and imperialism and so i found myself as one of the um a graduate student, who an elect, a Latinx graduate student who's trying to do research in these areas, and because I had gone through the NPH pro, like kind of program and curriculum, I was also seen as just a graduate student, and so I the mentoring role started to play a significant um, kind of dynamic. So that's a power relationship in and of itself. But I think that there, I was seen as a graduate student trying to learn, and that. Yes, I was a uh, uh, at the interdisciplinary space of maternal epidemiology and anthropology, and so the scientists were kind of like curious, and also um, I had skills to share, and so it seemed like a mutually beneficial at that moment. But um, I also just didn't have that much leverage to negotiate access or um, data, so permission. So in that sense. I was really at the mercy of the scientists who were willing to be open to my presence. And I was going to basically, I, I had to agree to whatever kind of access I could get. So that encounter, I was not prepared for my, my certain kinds of methodological epistemologies did not prepare me for what it means to be a researcher that it has to um, study up into powerful situations in which I'm, not necessarily holding a lot of leverage. So in that situation, I um, agreed to um, being able to study my own experiences as a staff member at the US trial and interview other staff members and um, review all of the documentation and uh, recordings from the, that the trial produced. So I had access to a lot of data I just did not have access to interviewing pregnant participants enrolled in the clinical trials because of IRB purposes. And so that was one of the main constraints. Um, I also decided to anonymize everyone, even though these are public scientists and these are publicly funded trials. And so everyone has access to these public records. I, I still maintain some, tried to protect any anonymity because I didn't want it to be about individual scientists. It's about systems of power that perpetuate and um, cons- at some points foreclose the creativity of science and the thinking of new ways uh, um, of bringing in new science and thinking about them in creative ways and so I wanted to focus on relations of power not individuals in my analysis and so I was okay with i, I that was important to try to protect anonymity in that sense um and even though the scientists didn't ask for me to do that explicitly but i went ahead and did so anyways i also am very well of the fact very well aware of the fact that when i was in the field and this is something else that i write about in the uh, upcoming maq paper is that i had heard you know in the grapevine of people who are doing um studying up in sts and who are women of color that um you know scientists are, are some of the if you're working with elite scientists and you ask, okay, I'm going to um, record you, and do you agree to being sharing your identity? And they sign the contract and everything, and um, that still doesn't protect from the researcher, particularly the and the anthropologist in this case, from being sued afterwards if the write up does not align with the interviewee's um, imagination of, of what was going to to come out of that. So I was very careful in thinking about the reality and the risk that anything that I write um, could, could not be what people had assumed I would write about. So there was no way for me to control that gap in interpretation and, and assumptions around what came out of this. But I definitely was very, very careful in explaining multiple times repeatedly, like I am an anthropologist and I work on the trial and I'm collecting my own observational data for the purposes of a of anthropological research and study and publications and um, I'm anonymizing and this is how I'm thinking about using the data in these different kinds of ways. And um, for my first publication on the trial, which came out um, in 2018, the, the preparing that manuscript, I did share it with the PIs. And in one of the labs at the US, they actually read the article as a journal group um, and and they gave me some feedback. I mean, basically, there wasn't that much issue. They were like, "You're just interested in very different questions than we are interested in, and you're doing methodologies that are very different from what we're doing." Um, and but the unfortunately, the um, PI in the UK did not respond, and so I couldn't follow up that much um, in terms of incorporating feedback for that paper. But um, but yeah, that the information was shared to them in terms of that write up, um, and then. I, you know, did my best to kind of, like I said, focus the analysis on systems and structures and not individual scientists, um, because that was important to the analysis, but also aligned with the feminist politics of doing this kind of research under a very particular kind of position, um, being oftentimes a a young graduate student, um, you know, a, a woman of color in these settings studying up it was a lot more uh, complicated than I had understood than I could have ever known going into it. But afterwards, I do think, you know, being vulnerable about these um, politics and processes are really important for methodologically training anthropologists who study up in the future to consider the the different dynamics that they might encounter and how to negotiate data access um, in those settings.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. This is um, this is fascinating. And thank you for giving us that trailer, I guess, for your upcoming article in Medical Anthropology Quarterly. So we'll have to watch out for that. And, and you mentioned um, having to make these choices with writing the book and how there's so much that you collect and so many conversations and experiences and voices, and you have to make these kinds of um, choices you know and what to put in and what to leave out and how to present it you know when you when you write up the study and so um, I wanted to ask you about, how you mentioned, I think, in the introduction of the book that there were some kind of questions or critiques about your writing in graduate school. Yet um, in the book, you have these very like creative strategies of bringing the reader into the chapter with them. You have these vignettes in the beginning of every chapter. Um, I was going to read just a little bit of one vignette. It's from uh, chapter three and. The vignette says you're sitting in the waiting room of a prenatal clinic. This is your first appointment to confirm your pregnancy. This is a private clinic with art on the walls. The wall sculpture looks like a decapitated woman in the fetal position. You notice how pronounced the rib cages. You wonder if the art was commissioned um, as an empowering representation of the ideal woman, thin, headless with only the essential parts for reproduction. On later visits, you will never really notice this art piece again, because it seems to blend in with the whole space, but it's always hanging over you. And so that's just one example of one of your opening vignettes that you have in every chapter. And so I wondered how you came to develop your writing voice. And if you have I don't, any advice um, for you know, graduate students or other people in the process of writing up their work.
0: Oh yes, thank you so much for the question. And I, I'm glad that's the first time I've ever had somebody read my book out loud back to me. So it's a very um precious first time how to to hear that land on my ears because you know, you're just so I've written that line over and over and over again a hundred times. And but to have somebody else read it to me, I was like, Oh wow, that's that landed. That did make the impression that I was hoping it made, but it was completely intangible for me to feel that I was just hoping that it would land on readers in, in that kind of way so um, thanks for reading that back to me um, the the development of the writing voice is was a a long journey a very long journey that goes back to my relationship with writing and you know insecurities and anxieties and imposter syndromes um, I I did not um i I really struggle with writing, and so i I think that it was it came that that what you read now really came out of an intentional effort to develop a sense of voice that was one of the best advice pieces of advice that I got in writing the book is that. You need to develop your voice. You need to be confident in what you're going to say and, and how you want to say it and who you want to say it to. Um, but it requires a lot of self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-confidence to develop a voice. And um, it also requires a lot of healing uh, with the kinds of insecurities. And as my uh, my, my good colleague, Emily Storr, has said, you have a... a a white supremacist internal voice that's always trying to knock you down when you're trying to write. And that, that was for me, the experience of this like internal voice that would always say, you know, this isn't good enough. Like this doesn't make sense. This is really bad writing. And, you know, it's not going to matter to anybody. Um, But to kind of situate those voices into the larger system and disconnect those voices from an internal sense of self, was really important for me in my process, along with um, you know, obviously a lot of therapy. But in the last few years, I was able to connect with a queer BIPOC writing group, and that fundamentally changed my my writing and thinking. It was one of the first times that I really got a chance to just think and write with um, queer um, people of color, and in an interdisciplinary setting. I was the only anthropologist in the setting, and so. I got to learn from performance arts and English and complete and translation studies. And they brought to me this reading of literature and writing of literature that really brought so much light um, and energy into my voice because I wasn't, I never really felt um, comfortable writing in the kind of like Geertz's thick description and ethnographically thick and um, bring the people to life and, um, you know, or the poetic kind of narrative, beautiful writing that other folks can manage um, and in anthropology, that I I just didn't have that that style. And so I kept thinking, what's another style that felt more comfortable uh, to me? And while I was reading a lot of Claudia Rankin's work and other poetry alongside this very real constraint that I could not write specifically about any individual pregnant person, and that I, in order to anonymize them, and so I had to first cut one of the two ways to address this was like creating composite ethnographic characters, which I can get into, but the other way was to create a second um, person vignette that would um, kind of obviously satisfy the requirement for anonymity, but also it served another purpose, which was to place the reader into this position create a sense of empathy, and um, analytically uh, intervene on, on, kind of manifest, materialize the, the argument, which is that um, everyone participates in these processes, even though we've created the myth that it's individual, and even though we've created this myth that it is essentially only um, biologically, quote unquote, assigned females who participate in, in gestating and birthing. And so I think that the second person vignette really helped me kind of make that intervention real, create anonymity, and write in a style that was a little bit more comfortable to me and and diverged a bit from the traditional anthropological description, but was very well developed in literature and in other areas that um, it was great to kind of see. And, you know, this isn't just um, the, the other, there were other people that were also doing this for instance, in the introduction in Renee Almaling's book, and in the introduction of um, Jill Fisher's book, uh, which which is really trying to kind of get people to get into these spaces that are very very hard to access, and so. But I wanted to do it one further by really um, uh, making a political statement around who is specifically imagined to take on these positions, um, and it could it could have gone both ways. I know my reviewers kind of were split on this, and then. Um, but, but I think that they could kind of see the through line by the consistent um, returning to this voice in, in, in lots of different kinds of ways um, throughout the piece. But I, and the, the other purpose for, the, for this writing style was to be able to kind of share an essence of the chapter um, in a way that a lot of um, quotes at the beginning kind of tend to do. But, um, and I was like, okay, the activity is, wh- what it, What would be a scenario that would capture the argument of this chapter in this kind of creative way? So that was my like writing prompt would to be like, okay, let's use a second person and create the scenario in which I, I retell the argument in this different kind of way so that I also know what the main argument is of the chapter. So if you can rehearse the argument in lots of different voices and styles you're kind of like getting a little bit better handle on what the argument of the chapter is. Um, and so that was, that was also what I was trying to do. But retrospectively, the second person vignettes throughout the book uh, serve um, practical um, expectations uh, that were externally imposed on me, internal um, exploration and creativity around developing my voice and an analytical um, purpose for thinking about the interventions that I was making in each chapter and in the overall book.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. The What you said about situating your inner critic or your internal voice within a larger structure and to kind of like externalize it, take it outside of you. And then, um, yeah, what you said about the the, the purpose of the, of the opening vignettes was, uh, was really interesting. I'm working with students right now in the writing their thesis. And I'm, we're talking about ways to open up the thesis and open up the different chapters. And I had never seen this done before. And so this is just another tool that I hope to communicate to them, but I know that readers will find to be really engaging in reading your book. Um, and so, and I'm glad that yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad that me reading that landed also for you as well. Um, so this is the, I guess, the final question that we usually use to to close out the um, the discussions of the book. And they are, um, and so now that Weighing the Future is out in the world, what projects do you have uh, coming up? Um, what projects are you planning for the for the future?
0: Um, thank you. So I am I'm, I'm currently on research leave supported by the AAUW postdoctoral grant. And it is in support of a project that I'm trying to think through called post reproduction and the aftermath of failure, which has a few different threads. Um, and obviously in preliminary stages, these And the projects are still very ambiguous and nebulous. But I am interested in following up with um, a lot of the clinical trials that I looked at are inconclusive. In other words, they failed to show any um, improvement in health outcomes across the two groups or any difference in health outcomes across the two groups. And so I was thinking about, um, you know, what happens when scientists are confronted with this failure. And this is consistent with a lot of the other studies that are coming out of uh, in epigenetically specific studies that are trying, that are failing to find um, epigenetic mo- traces of epigenetic modifications in human populations, specifically within the context of reproduction. It's really hard for a lot of different reasons. And um, Amy Non and Thayer have, have, have a great um, explanation for some of these challenges in designing epigenetic studies that specifically look complexly around stress and immigration and pregnancy. So I, I was really curious. I'm like, okay, so what happens if we can't, find what we think we're looking for, but actually the findings are also common sense that like racism and stress um, negatively adversely impact um, pregnancy. Do we need more data? And a lot of my colleagues and I are yelling out loud that we don't actually need any more data because we have the answers. We know that um, stress and racism impact health and reproduction and pregnancy and early development. And so um, it is a political choice to continue to fund um, research that tries to ask these questions and then are not coming up with answers. Um, and it, it, in, in the worst scenario, it could actually start to, to influence policy and in saying, oh, there must not be a connection here because we're not finding it in the research, in the clinical trials or in the studies. And that's a dangerous Outcome of of this, and it just reinforces this idea that like these individuals are are could potentially be um, targeted for more and more interventions. Um, so so that is an area that I'm thinking about, and also is very much related to the expansion of ideas around intergenerational. Um, trauma and the ways in which we're trying to think about that scientifically, if our methods and tools are having a really hard time corroborating that. But we have, obviously, experiential knowledge and testimony to think through these things, like what, what are the limits of our um, capacity to um, politically make choices on on distribution, redistributing resources, but our methods and tools and, and prioritization of data and knowledge and evidence, you know, still kind of inhibit a more capacious, creative interpretation and translation of emergent science. So the, the second project is really taking on these bigger questions, but in lots of different kinds of ways, looking at studies that have failed, looking at the ways in which scientists respond and thinking about, you know, what are the political stakes in, it, in continuing to do these kinds of studies reliant on very particular kinds of methods when, when it's just not really able to capture the complexity of, of emerging ideas. Um, so that's, that's one of the areas that I'll be working on.
1: That sounds, that sounds really great. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about that and hearing about those findings um, in the future. Um, so I have been speaking to Dr. Natalie Valdez, the author of the book, Weighing the Future, Race, Science, and Pregnancy Trials in the Post-Genomic Era, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me.